This is the Audio Information Network of Colorado. Thank you for joining us for the Boulder Weekly. My name is Kate McCann. Starting with an opinion piece by Dave Anderson. Did a CU prof almost mark spark an American coup d'etat? In August 2020, John Eastman published an op-ed in Newsweek suggesting that Kamala Harris might be unqualified to be vice president because her parents weren't U.S. citizens when she was born. Harris was definitely born in Oakland, California, but Eastman has a very fringe view of the 14th Amendment's birthright citizenship clause. Trump and his campaign surrogates used this racist birtherism to attack her. However, many legal scholars of various political stripes were outraged by Eastman's claims. We found out that Eastman was a visiting CU Boulder Scholar of conservative thought and policy. He was on leave from Chapman University, where he is tenured constitutional law professor. On January 6, Eastman was a speaker at Trump's Stop the Steal rally on the National Mall. We know there was fraud, Eastman told the crowd, that would soon become a violent mob storming the U.S. Capitol. We know that dead people voted. Eastman had penned an elaborate memo for Trump on how to overturn the election. But according to election officials of both parties, the 2020 election was free and fair. Joe Biden won both the popular and electoral college vote. It wasn't even close. On January 4th, Trump, Pence, and Eastman met in the White House. Trump urged Pence to listen to Eastman. Pence was ambivalent, but was under a great deal of pressure to obey Trump. He consulted a number of prominent conservative Republicans who didn't think much of the seditious memo. This was a coup conducted by the president against his own vice president and the Congress, Representative Jamie Raskin, a member of the January 6th committee, told Greg Sargent of the Washington Post, We are actively investigating both the organization of the bloody insurrection and the planning of the coup against American democracy. Both of them were attacks on the constitutional order. In The Atlantic, Adam Swerer outlined Trump's brazen public acts. One, Trump tried to pressure secretaries of state not to certify. Two, Trump tried to pressure state legislatures to overturn the results. Three, Trump tried to get the courts to overturn the results. Four, Trump tried to pressure Mike Pence to overturn the results. Five, when all else failed, Trump tried to get a mob to overturn the results. Sewer asks, imagine if Pence had gone along with Eastman's absurd plan and a mob had been present at the Capitol to help enforce the decision and menace lawmakers who tried to oppose it. What then? In an analysis for Media Matters, Eric Kleinfeld details how right-wing media outlets, such as Fox News and Newsmax, served as a platform to spread lies and propaganda during each of Serwer's five steps. He argues without that right-wing information bubble, Trump's coup could never have been attempted. Matt Gertz of Media Matters reports that ABC, CBS, and NBC morning and evening news broadcasts have virtually ignored the Eastman coup memo. 
CNN and MSNBC have covered the story extensively, but the national networks have larger audiences. Interestingly, the only national network broadcast to mention the memo were late-night variety show hosted by Stephen Colbert, Jimmy Kimmel, and Seth Meyers. The coup was thwarted, but the threat to democracy is still there. You could look at 2020 as the nadir of American democracy processes, or you could look at it as a dress rehearsal, argues Rick Hassan, a professor of law at UC Irvine, where he is the co-director of the Fair Elections and Free Speech Center. He told Politico, The rhetoric is so overheated that I think it provides the basis for millions of people to accept an actual stolen election as payback for the falsely claimed earlier stolen election. People are going to be more willing to cheat if they think they've been cheated out of their just desserts. He is alarmed at not only the voter suppression bills passed in Republican-dominated states, but election subversion, which is not about making it harder for people to vote, but about manipulating the outcome of the election so that the losers declared the winner and or put in power. The Brennan Center for Justice has found that state legislatures across the nation have taken steps to strip election officials of the power to run, count, and certify elections, consolidating power in their own hands over processes intended to be free of partisan or political interference. Senate Democrats have introduced the Freedom to Vote Act, which deals with these attacks on democracy. It is a good beginning. Who is Safer Boulder? How a Shadowy Group Became a Powerful Force in Boulder Politics by Shay Castle in partnership with Boulder Beat. As tents proliferated in Boulder's parks and public spaces, residents react to the trash, drug use, and uncomfortable sight of American inequality laid bare by pressing for government action. A flurry of investment in shelter and services, or else a crackdown on so-called urban camping, in some places both at once. The rising homelessness crisis has captured attention in the front range and beyond like never before. In Boulder, the seemingly unshrinkable population of people living unsheltered led to the formation of a new political bloc including two groups endorsing candidates for city council in this fall's election. Safer Boulder appeared mid-pandemic with a popular petition asking for the prompt removal of unhoused individuals and an increase in police patrols. More than 9,000 people have signed to date. To supporters, Safe Boulder was a voice of the silent majority, residents who felt the degradation of their city was being ignored by those in power. In their opponents' view, the members of Safer Boulder were bigoted and largely privileged homeowners who do not care what happens to unhoused people so long as they go away. To the public, though, Safer Boulder has remained largely unknown a shadowy group associated with one petition and a singular goal, get unhoused people off city land. Last fall, communications between a dozen members of Safer Boulder 
were published by a group that infiltrated Safer Boulder's Slack using a fake identity to express sympathy with Safer Boulder's aims. Slack is a centralized online workspace that allows individuals to post direct and group messages. Though a portion of the leaked documents have been in wide circulation and the subject of a conversation among the city's political class, Boulder Weekly and Boulder Beat are reporting on the leaks in their entirety for the first time. What they reveal are Safer Boulder's broader ambitions and efforts that predate the widely circulated petition. Members have secured spots on sanctioned city groups, been invited to speak on panels, and founded new political organizations. A prominent Safer Boulder member, Steve Rosenblum, is running for city council this year and earned the endorsement of a half-dozen current and former elected officials and a key political group that has been a dominant force in Boulder for more than 40 years. Safer Boulder members exposed in the leaks insist that Slack workspace was not for political organizing, but rather a way for like-minded community members to gather and discuss their concerns. They view the chats as private communications of ordinary citizens and report being harassed, threatened, and intimidated by fellow Boulderites for things they wrote. Every member of Safer Boulder named on the Safer leak site was emailed for comment at email addresses included in the leak directory. Additional messages were sent to 11 members who posted in the group Slack. Five people identified in the leaked documents as Safer Boulder members active in the Slack confirmed that they wrote messages attributed to them. Two others have neither confirmed nor disputed their authenticity. One has denied involvement and disputed the leaks as fraudulent. The identities of Safer Boulder members named in this story were verified using multiple independent sources. Individuals who have not been confirmed as authors of posts are referred to by the names associated with active Slack accounts in Safer Boulder workspace. Most individuals who were named publicly as members of Safer Boulder did not participate in the Slack chats. Four such persons who replied to requests for comment said they were unaware of its existence but confirmed they had signed on to an email list, Facebook, or Nextdoor group because they have similar concerns about encampments. What Safer Boulder members share, even with those whom they vehemently disagree, is a realization that the current system serving unhoused individuals is not adequate to prevent people from living on the streets. Beyond the hateful rhetoric, deep resentment, and rejection of evidence-based practices, are citizens weary of continued homelessness, hardened by a city celebrating success while hundreds remain on the streets. One wrote one user, My compassion has suffered a slow and painful death these past few years. Safer Boulder first emerged as the backers of a Change.org petition seeking to address rising crime, drug use, and environmental damage in our public spaces. Not much was known about the group behind the petition. No organizers were listed for the petition, and Safer's official website does not name leaders or provide contact information. 
It has not registered as an official committee with the city. Any individual and group can endorse candidates for city council, but groups that solicit contributions and spend money on behalf of a candidate or issue during the election season must register with the city and disclose certain information such as organizing officers, donors, spending, etc. But leaked documents show they were known to those in power. Members had been meeting with elected officials since 2019 when they evaluated city council candidates for sympathy to their cause. Among their assessments, Rachel Friend is a great listener. However, she seems to be in line with the addition of a lot of services. Junie Joseph would be difficult to work with on these issues. Bob Yates comes across as reasonable, but is 100% politician. I would always double-guess whatever he says. Mark Wallish is completely on board with us, the only candidate that straight out said crime is a problem, the transient population is a problem, the needle program is a problem. But he is also realistic and pointed out that some solutions have been deemed unconstitutional. Adam Swetlick has a unique perspective from his work as a bouncer downtown who worked with police often, but also initially supported decriminalizing homelessness. It will be on us to convince him of what he should do, members wrote. He suggests if we want to help him help us, the squeaky wheel gets the oil. Two council members and one candidate confirmed these meetings. As the COVID-19 pandemic worsened economic conditions and temporarily lessened enforcement of the camping ban, homelessness took center stage in city council discussions, bringing more attention to the issue. Safer Boulder sought allies and business owners and the public at large. Throughout 2020, members distributed flyers throughout the downtown area, directing people to the petition, paid for 500 postcards to do the same, and delivered binders of information and photos to council members' homes. They also continued to meet with elected officials, including regular communication with Yates, who won re-election in 2019 with a record number of votes. Council members frequently meet with residents and various interest groups. Yates is particularly responsive and accessible to the larger community. Yet safer boulders seem to be given differential treatment, nabbing a slide to themselves in an official presentation to City Council during a July 2020 update on homelessness. The group's requests were presented alongside recommendations from the city's own housing and human rights groups. Elevation of political groups to official presentations, while not entirely unprecedented, is rare enough that it drew questions from council and the community. Why did we give Safer Boulder their own slide that was equivalent to board recommendations, council member friend asked and especially since there were other community groups writing in. I was sort of confused to see that slide. That was a request by one of the council members to put that up there, responded Housing and Human Services Director Kurt Finhuber. We had different requests by different council members. Safer Boulder's website encourages residents to run for boards and commissions or city council. Planning board member 
Jorge Boone was included in the leaked email directory and list of active Slack users. He did not post in any of the leaked messages, but other members claimed him as one of their own. Boone said his interest in the board was not influenced by Safer Boulder. In response to emailed questions, Boone wrote that his sympathies align with the aims stated in the public petition. The rise of crime in the city, and in particular the extreme level of meth and heroin addiction in our city and in our public space, but his involvement was limited to signing up for an email list. I was not involved or frankly even aware of any of the Slack message board, he wrote. While Safer Boulder's leadership worked at weaving themselves into city politics, the group also ingratiated itself with the Boulder Police Department. Multiple food deliveries were made to police headquarters, funded by members of the group. Members obsessively documented crime. The topic had its own dedicated channel on the Slack, listening to the police scanner and pulling arrest records. They were critical of police reform and those who endorse it, questioning the idea that racial bias exists in local policing and extolling the virtues of broken windows policing, a theory that intervening in lesser crimes, such as vandalism, reduces serious crime. The strategy has been criticized as disproportionately harmful to people of color. Brooke Harrison, identified in the leaks as an active Safer Boulder member, also sits on the Police Chief's Community Dialogue and Engagement Panel. Harrison's name was included in the list of member email addresses and an account with the same name posted frequently in Slack, updating the group about the panel's meetings. Boulder Police Chief Maris Harrod would like community support as she moves forward with her plan to rigidly adhere to a protocol to remove camps, Harrison wrote on Friday, August 7th, referencing the previous day's meeting of the panel. The biggest hurdle to enforcement in BPDs and the group's opinion is City Council. They need to be very clear in their support of BPD's actions and in their support of the camping ban. The residents of Boulder need to overcome the very vocal minority. On July 5th, 2020, Harrison wrote, BPD has asked we oppose Bill 217, referring to police reform legislation brought forward in the Colorado Senate that, among other things, made it easier to sue individual officers in civil court. Senate Bill 217 was signed into law last summer. Harrison did not respond to email requests for comment. Other members claimed to meet with Harold informally, reporting back that Harold is on board and strategizing and that the chief confirmed the group's suspicion that unhoused persons living in encampments are criminals, mainly from out of town, not the economically unfortunate, otherwise law-abiding resident. Through a department spokesperson, Chief Harold says she doesn't recall that she made any of the above statements verbatim, but she was opposed to Senate Bill 217 as it was written and worked with legislators, community members, victim advocacy groups, and prosecutors to get amendments included in it. The community panel is formed about current laws and other items of interest to policing and community safety that will impact them or things that are not helpful, Harold said. 
but members were not directed to take any particular position, she said in an interview. What they do with it is what they do with it. Harold said she was unfamiliar with the group Safer Boulder. The first glimpse at who was behind Safer Boulder came in fall 2020. Screenshots of a private Slack group were posted on a website, Safer Leaks, and shared locally across various social media platforms. More than 40 alleged members were named, including a dozen who appeared routinely post to Safer Boulder's Slack workspace. Safer Leaks focused on the harshest aspects of the chats, from gleeful recognition of the vulnerability of unhoused persons to calls for and celebrations of harm. Active participants in the group Slack were called out on individual pages with selective screenshots highlighting the worst of their posts. Craig Brooks joked that perhaps unsheltered people would be eaten by bears or mountain lions, suggested that safer boulder raid encampments at night, and expressed a desire for camps to be cleared with fire hoses. Not like they can call the police for help, Brooks wrote. They are pretty vulnerable if you think about it. Though an attorney, Brooks responded that he was not part of the group's political organizing efforts and that his involvement with Safer Boulder was only as an online chat participant. He has no connections to city council members, elected officials, bigwigs in the police department. He's had no part in drafting their policy proposals, said Dan Ernst, counsel for Brooks. Whereas they actually are an organized group who meet and who are running a candidate for city council, he's not part of that. He's not part of their election campaign. He hasn't even been involved in conversing with these people for over a year. His participation was intended to be private communication and venting among confidants, the type of thing you would do in a living room or cafe when those were available. They weren't during the COVID. This was just, you know, his place to vent. Brooks contributed pictures of unhoused individuals, which he called photos of human trash, to a Slack channel entitled Photos. Images from this channel were compiled and distributed to city council members, according to leaked Slack messages and elected officials. The Safer Leaks website allows anyone to download every purported leaked screenshot and document with more than 1,000 in all. Every item in that archive was reviewed for this article. What the leaks reveal about the group is in sharp contrast to its public image. On Safer Boulder's website, Brooke Harrison wrote that Safer Boulder's concern is not only for housed residents and visitors, but for the unhoused who are disproportionately victimized. In the Slack conversations, Safer Boulder members reject any, many evidence-based interventions. Members express deep skepticism of and or opposition to a housing-first approach to homelessness, in which housing is used to stabilize individuals before attempting to tackle their other needs such as mental illness, addiction, physical health concerns, or job training. Boulder County and other communities use housing first as part of a continuum of services. The practice is supported by data and experts as more effective than treatment first approaches in reversing long-term homelessness. This rejection of housing first principles 
appears to stem from a deep resentment from anyone getting for help for free, particularly a population they viewed as entitled criminals and meth heads, according to leaked documents. As Todd Root wrote, free housing is an insult to non-criminals trying to get by. There is an accepted need within the Safer Boulder for better drug addiction and mental health treatment. Many members want treatment and or employment mandated to receive housing in direct contradiction of Housing First principles. The roots of addiction are oft discussed in the Slack chats with no consensus and little compassion, seen more as a personal failing than a medical condition or the result of trauma. Recovering addicts are revered. Those still in the grips of addiction are reviled, mocked, and feared. Photos of individuals in various states of consciousness or crisis were met with jokes or disgust, as were images of encampments. Leslie Chandler, who posted some of the photos, wrote in response to emailed questions that those pictures and comments I made were displaying my frustration around the situation in our town, where clearly mentally ill or substance-addicted individuals aren't receiving the services they need and are rather wandering the streets. This is not good for them or our community. My comments were on a private Slack channel used for candid comments around a very frustrating topic of crime and safety issues facing Boulder. It is almost impossible to speak openly about this topic without being labeled negatively. My comments were taken out of context and given a narrative that is not accurate. Many members were incredulous of residents who advocated for more services or protections for the unhoused. They are categorized as disingenuous hypocrites or idiotic, virtue-signaling, do-gooding morons who want the unhoused to remain homeless. Protesters of encampment removals are ignoramuses who attempt to gin up hate and aggression. Even the nonprofit agencies providing services are accused of profiting off homelessness. Together, a nonprofit assisting unhoused youths who have aged out of the foster system is lamb-blasted frequently, referred to as aggression homes and detention homes. Together was formerly known as attention homes. And its clients as drug users and young and upcoming criminals. Sometimes I think the 10-year plan to end homelessness was actually a 10-year plan to establish homeless services as a profitable industry with as little accountability as possible, wrote Todd Root. Taking care of the homeless is big business here in Boulder. Root did not respond to email requests for comments for this story. Safe Access for Everyone, SAFE, a local group of activists advocates for unhoused residents, which has come under fire for its own methods and messaging, is a favorite target in the post, ridiculed for handing out tents and survival gear and criticizing police action against unhoused people. It is a cover for Marxist Agenda, wrote a user with a display name of Jillian Lloyd. I do not believe that SAFE members care about the well-being of campers one bit. They are exploiting them. 
This user responded to an email request for comment with a cease and desist notice and threat of legal action. I am not a member of Safer Boulder, she wrote. The statements you falsely attribute to me is claimed by an anonymous unnamed source are libelous and ridiculous. The request for comment was sent to an email address associated with a Slack account under the name Jillian Lloyd that posted to the Slack numerous times. The email address includes the full first and last name Jillian Lloyd. There is acknowledgement in the documents that some unhoused individuals are victims of bad circumstances or economic conditions, but such admissions were few and far between. There was no explicit discussion in leaked materials of how broad enforcement actions impact these harmless, homeless, versus individuals safer, bolder members viewed as more deserving of police action and jail time. They too suffer when the worst among them are not filtered out, Root wrote. Really, they suffer the most. We could support them better if the bad actors were handled differently, the Lloyd account responded. Safer leaks did not garner much attention outside of political insiders. The leaks did not receive media coverage at the time, and even those few who were paying attention soon moved on. Then in July, Steven Rosenblum announced his candidacy for city council, picking Safer Boulder Chair Sherry Roth as his campaign manager. Campaign finance records show that Roth and 11 other people named as members in the leaks donated to Rosenblum's campaign. Many also contributed financially to other candidates backed by the same groups that are supporting Rosenblum. Rosenblum's candidacy was soon endorsed by elected officials Wallach and Yates. A half dozen former city council members lent their names as well, as did former Boulder County District Attorney Stan Garnett. Rosenblum also scored a coveted endorsement from Plan Boulder, a longtime presence in Boulder politics that has backed the majority of council members for several decades, as well as many members of boards, commissions, and citizen working groups. Forward Boulder, a newly formed political group, also endorsed Rosenblum. Rosenblum donated to Forward's unofficial candidate committee, according to campaign finance records, as did eight other Safer Boulder members named in the leaks. Like Safer Boulder, Forward's website does not name its leaders or organizers. Official city filings show that one of Forward's founding officers is XREM, who was on the leaked list of Safer Boulder Slack members. An email with his name was also included in the member directory. He did not contribute to any of the leaked posts. In response to email questions, an unnamed representative of Forward Boulder wrote that Ekram's involvement in Safer Boulder was limited to joining a Google list. Boulder Progressives, a political organization that is backing a group of candidates opposed to Rosenblum and other Forward-endorsed candidates, sent an email to followers highlighting the Safer Leaks website and dedicated a page of its own website to Rosenblum's leaked Slack posts. 
Rosenblum, through his attorney Garnett, is suing voter progressives, its leadership, and two other politically active individuals for amplifying the Safer Leaks blog. The leaker is also named in the suit as John Doe. Rosenblum and Roth were more measured than other members on the Safer Boulder Slack. Their contributions to the Slack chat mainly consisted of support for police, criticism of homeless services and affordable housing, and general discussions of encampments, policies, and politics. At times, Rosenblum pushed back on some of the more disturbing rhetoric. He once warned a member against painting with too broad a brush, but most of his remonstrations appeared aimed at public perception of the language itself rather than the ideology behind it. Please be forceful but careful with your rhetoric, he wrote, after a safer, bolder affiliate posted to Facebook comparing unhoused people to infestation of rats. The aim is persuasion. With respect, I would recommend avoiding loaded terms like infestation when referring to homeless camps. In response to questions, Rosenblum said, I didn't view it as my role to constantly police people's language, even though I attempted to. I wanted to use my time more productively. Roth responded, Safer Boulder is a grassroots community group created by residents and business owners from all walks of life who are concerned about public safety in our town. Like all community groups, we reach out to city council members, the police chief, city staff, and other decision makers to educate, express concerns, and suggest approaches that might help reduce crime in Boulder. Safer Boulder is a loosely organized group of like-minded people on next door. This Slack group was a seemingly private social communication platform, not a place to set group agendas or policy. Safer Boulder has never been formally organized or had leadership structure. We are private citizens who have accorded protections. Individual Slack posts do not reflect the collective group opinions, values, or ideology. Intimidation of groups like ours through manipulating private communications, innuendo, and doxing is an effort to shut down public discussion of key issues. Safer Boulder members were aware that their ideas may not be well received outside the confines of their slack. They were keen to keep their identities a secret. Desires to submit op-eds to the Daily Camera were quelled by others pointing out that names were required. Members may well have remained anonymous were it not for the leaks. A person who belongs to a cohort claiming responsibility for the leaks agreed to speak for this story on a condition of anonymity. They are sympathetic to the plight of unhoused individuals and have previous experience infiltrating and exposing neo-Nazis and white supremacists, they say. Using a fake identity and an AI-generated profile picture, the leakers were invited to join the Safer Boulder Slack after expressing support for the group's aims and volunteering to help. The contributors to the Slack channel were not vetted. Rosenblum wrote in an email response to questions, all were welcome. Harrison, in a September 13th post on Safer Boulder website, wrote, Almost anyone who expressed interest in the organization was admitted. When we decided to infiltrate, the leaker said, it was just to see what was going on behind the scenes. 
Once we saw, we decided to let the community know and other activists and unhoused folks know what their real motivations are and how they actually relate to unhoused folks. There was a private channel within the Slack workspace the leakers were not able to access, but they began taking screenshots of everything else that was available, they said, eventually securing hundreds of images. They lost access to the Slack workspace after the Safer Leaks website was published on October 6, 2020. An archive of the leaks was also forced to switch servers, leakers said. After being suspended for violations of terms of service, such as abuse of rights of others, sharing or importing the illegal data or systems abuse, the notification read. There were missteps by the leakers. One individual was wrongly identified. That person declined to comment for this story. And Rosenblum was incorrectly linked to a Reddit account whose real author seemed to share many traits with Rosenblum that led leakers to believe it was him. The Reddit author and Rosenblum are both from Brooklyn, made references to real estate investing, shared similar views on unhoused residents, and admiration for broken windows policing, and participated in many of the same leisure and recreation activities, the leaker said. This information was removed from the Safer Leaks website after probing from a reporter. A deeper look at the Reddit account revealed that its author moved to Boulder many years ago. Rosenblum is a relatively recent transplant. I have a lot of guilt about that, they said. It's really important to be accurate. The leakers stand by their actions. Private information such as email addresses and phone numbers was not posted in the curated Safer Leaks. That information is contained in the archive of the full leaks linked on the website. Posting of private information on social media, often known as doxing, occurred independently of the Safer Leaks effort. The Safer Leaks website was inspired by sites that exposed leaked communications of far-right and white supremacist groups with individual pages for alleged members that connect them to businesses they own or their places of employment. Most of Safer Boulder's members were readily identifiable, having used their full first and last names in the Slack channel. Some shared personal details that made verification easy for leakers. Voters' records and LinkedIn's were used for confirmation. Leaking the communications was essential, they asserted, to show that the public presentation of Safer Boulder was not representative of their true beliefs about unhoused individuals, attitudes they view as dangerous. A big part of fascism classically is fantasizing about a mythologized past in which your community was great and blaming that fall from grace on degenerates, they say. I'm not saying they are fascists, but I see similar rhetoric. Nor do they believe Safer Boulder members are the only ones who hold such views. Their agenda has pretty much been enacted in the city council. They were talking about how the police should be able to take a tent wherever they see it. Now they can. I think largely they've been quite successful because the sort of powers that be align with their interests. Safer Boulder members believe they have tapped into a vein that runs beyond the halls of power. To some degree, they are right. 
City Council was inundated with emails and calls to remove encampments, though the scope and source of such reports remains unknown. Businesses also rallied against the rising crime they rightly or wrongly attributed to homelessness, testifying before state lawmakers against legislation that it would have put fewer people behind bars for nonviolent offenses. An alliance of business owners and police made Boulder the epicenter of a fight over jail reform, but they were joined by voices from around the state. And Safer Boulder is far from alone in its calls for more criminalization of homelessness, though they dispute that characterization. According to the Slack discussion, members compared notes and gleaned information from similar groups in Austin and Seattle, where rising homelessness has also inspired backlash. Members spoke about amassing an army and representing the 99% with their calls for enforcement. These people talk about giving a voice to the voiceless. Hell, that's what we do, the Lloyd account wrote. It's unclear if the majority of Boulder supports such policies. Extensive polling has not been done. There is but one survey to point to, commissioned by a former city councilwoman earlier this year. It found that more respondents, 56%, strongly or somewhat supported allowing camps to remain than those who, 35%, strongly or somewhat wanted the camps to be removed. Carrie Paul, who did not participate in the Slack, wrote in response to emailed questions, my intention is to try to let the city leaders know that there are folks who are not bleeding heart liberals for the homeless. And we live here, and we're not interested in attracting the homeless, but rather interested in having a good quality of life for those of us who invested in living here. Frustration with persistent homelessness is understandable, says Steve Berg, Vice President for Programs and Policy with the National Alliance to End Homelessness. It is a solvable problem that is being allowed to continue through inadequate or inefficient investment of resources or barriers to access. However, that's a reason to be frustrated with community leaders, not homeless people. The proof of whether or not a given system is working is not in the amount of money spent, Berg said, but in the results. Are people using the services that are available? Are there fewer people living unhoused and unsheltered? Are they accessing housing more quickly? Are they staying housed? What we know about what works to get people off the streets and into housing has been used and made to work in enough different communities that we can say pretty confidently what's needed, Berg said. Arresting people is not what's needed. That doesn't work anywhere. Boulder issues tickets for violations of camping and tent bans. Unpaid tickets are considered a failure to appear, or FTA. After three FTAs, a warrant for arrest is issued. Using the cops and courts to address homelessness has the opposite effect, Berg says. It makes cooperation less likely. You're not going to deter people. The idea that the homeless people are going to go away, they can't just choose not to be homeless. Now an article by Jody Housen. Learning when to be hands-off. Specialized training provides law enforcement tools 
to interact with people with disabilities. When 73-year-old Karen Garner was arrested for shoplifting last year in Loveland, police officers threw her to the ground and handcuffed her, dislocating her shoulder and breaking a bone in her arm. Garner, who was in a body cam video, repeatedly told police she had planned to pay for the items she'd taken, has dementia, and an impaired ability to communicate and comprehend language. The city of Loveland settled a federal lawsuit on September 8th, agreeing to pay Garner $3 million. This sort of scenario happens all too often to people like Garner, with invisible or non-apparent disabilities such as deafness or autism. But with better law enforcement training, it could happen less often. Allie Thomas Thompson, a former detective with the Boulder County Sheriff's Office and current state investigator, created a curriculum that uses actual body cam video to better prepare officers to respond to situations involving people like Garner with disabilities. Thompson, who has two special children with special needs, one is essentially nonverbal, so she has first-hand experience with both law enforcement and disability. She recently founded Pulse Line Collaborative Training to share the lessons she's learned over the years. The cops don't understand the disability world, and people with disabilities don't understand cops, she says. If there is no imminent threat to safety, officers should remain hands-off. If the person they are trying to interact with doesn't comply, the police need to figure out why. We have to teach officers to communicate better with people who communicate differently than they do, or whose brains work differently than theirs, she adds. As cops, we need to understand that if they run, it's because they think they're going to kill them. I respect that they are scared of us, but it breaks my heart because all the cops I know went into law enforcement because they want to help people. And though this sort of training isn't new, several Colorado law enforcement agencies, including Boulder County Sheriff's Department, have been addressing the issue for years. It will be mandatory for all law enforcement officers starting July 2022. Introduced by State Representative Megan Froelich, the new law passed in the last legislative session with moderate bipartisan support, with all Democratic and half of all Republican senators voting for it. It creates a 12-person commission composed of representatives from the disability community, law enforcement, and the State Attorney General's office, who will be tasked with examining current training protocols and recommending standards for future curricula. Froelich says law enforcement supported the bill, though it was generated by advocates for people with autism, Alzheimer's, and those who are deaf or hard of hearing. The bill intentionally admitted legislators from the commission, she adds. We really wanted to give disability community a seat at the table, she says, to give them a voice. About one in six children in the U.S. are diagnosed with a developmental disability, including autism, cerebral palsy, Tourette syndrome, Down syndrome, fetal alcohol syndrome, or intellectual disabilities. 
People with developmental disabilities are seven times more likely to have interactions with law enforcement than the general population, according to the Organization for Autism Research. People with disabilities are more likely to experience victimization, be arrested, be charged with a crime, and serve longer prison sentences once convicted than those without disabilities, according to the advocacy organization, the ARC's National Center on Criminal Justice and Disability. And many people with developmental disabilities have co-occurring psychiatric issues, such as anxiety, depression, obsessive-compulsive disorder, or bipolar disorder, says Jennifer Eastman, Director of Community Living Policy at Maryland's Department of Disabilities. Maryland is thought to have been the first state to mandate disability awareness training for police in 2015, and several other states have followed suit. State legislators in the state formed the Ethan Saylor Alliance in 2014 to create a curriculum after the state's Police Correctional Training Commission adopted such training requirements. Ethan Saylor was killed by an off-duty police officer's working security jobs when Saylor, who had Down syndrome, refused to leave a movie theater. Patty Saylor, Ethan's mother, was instrumental in the Alliance's foundation with intentions to integrate people with intellectual and developmental disabilities, known as self-advocates, into the scenario-based training for law enforcement. Law enforcement officers do receive de-escalation training, but too often the courses offer only an hour or two on disability issues, if at all, says Leanne Davis, who runs the National Center on Criminal Justice and Disability. Just like we expect them to understand things around racial bias, they need to understand disability and biases against people with disabilities. What are the assumptions we're making about people with disabilities, she says. Because if you don't understand the context of people's lives, then it's real hard to understand them. We have to start with listening and understanding the community rather than taking a managerial response. The Maryland Alliance's curriculum integrates self-advocate educators to play roles in life scenarios with one core principle being that all people, including people with disabilities, want to feel safe, understood, and included in their communities. The program seeks to meet six core objectives, including recognizing signs that a person has a disability, using effective communication methods with that person, and educating officers about the resources available for people in crisis. The idea is to resolve incidents before they escalate into violence or worse, and to get people to appropriate treatment rather than arresting them and taking them to jail. These concepts require a shift in the traditional policing from asserting immediate control of a subject to using what Boulder County Under Sheriff Tommy Sloan refers to as discretionary time, taking a few moments to assess a situation before rushing in if there's no imminent safety threat. It requires officers to slow down to determine the underlying issues of a particular person and the circumstances that led up to the situation in which they were called, and then use a variety of techniques to de-escalate it. 
But police don't always get to control the narrative, Sloan says. Often the incident for which officers were called has already happened or is in progress, which makes that discretionary time more challenging and potentially more dangerous, says Douglas County Sheriff Tony Spurlock. Every cop is always late, he he says, he tells his officers. But that's why it's important to spend more time understanding what's led up to that situation by asking questions, listening, and observing. Officers should be asking themselves, what should we be concerned with here, and what can I do to diffuse this situation? Fifty Douglas County officers recently took Thompson's Pulse Line eight-hour course and more classes are scheduled. Boulder County expects to hire Thompson to do the same for its department next year. It starts with how you respond, says Douglas County Deputy Chad Davey, who was in Thompson's training. If you are able to recognize the different indicators of a disability, it changes how you respond to it, the way you communicate. In most of these cases, time is on our side. 95% of their job is talking to people, says former patrol deputy Kocha Hayden, now Douglas County Sheriff's public information officer. Hayden has been in law enforcement for 30 years and says she always felt more comfortable speaking with people rather than using force to control a situation. I'm not a fighter, she says. I really feel that I've been more effective talking to people. At the end of it, we want to go home safe. We want the person to go home safe. We just want the situation to end peacefully. Lisa Schoenbrot, Professor of Speech-Language Hearing Sciences, and Leah Catherine Saul, Associate Professor of Literacy, both at Loyola University in Maryland, published a study earlier this year to assess the effectiveness of Maryland's training programs. Although the study had statistically limited results due in part to COVID-19 restrictions, after taking the class, trainees reported they had a better understanding of people with disabilities and their rights, and they had learned techniques to better communicate with them. As required by all Douglas County deputies, Davey had also previously taken Crisis Intervention Team Training, or CIT, a 40-hour course designed to teach first responders and others how to respond to people having a mental health crisis. The longer CIT course allows for hands-on scenario practice and has similarities to the disability training, though it's specifically geared to mental illness concerns. It gives officers insights and tools to handle unusual situations in a less aggressive manner than they might have previously done. A 2018 study aiming to measure the effectiveness of CIT after 10 years of use in Colorado analyzed 6,353 incidents involving people with mental health crisis, including reports of substance abuse, psychiatric illness, violent risk, or threats of suicide. The report, The Limited, showed encouraging results, even in the presence of lethal weapons, and showed promise for the nonviolent resolution of crisis calls. People experiencing extreme mental health issues were more likely to be taken to appropriate treatment facility rather than being arrested and put in jail. 
SWAT teams were less likely to be deployed in these situations since their presence often further agitates someone experiencing the effects of mental illness. The same could be said of a person with an intellectual or developmental disability. Injuries to subjects and officers and the use of force were also found to have fallen, albeit minimally. Although Thompson recognizes the benefits of live scenario-based training, but her program is limited to eight hours, she chose to use body cam videos that she stops midstream and discusses the situation with students, asking them how they might respond. So it's more streamlined than CIT, Davy says, but it's still very interactive. And Thompson really pushes people to be involved in the conversation. It's the best way to broadcast the information to the class given time constraints. Getting officers trained can be challenging though, particularly for smaller departments that can't afford from safety or financial perspectives to take officers off shifts to attend an eight hour training, let alone 40 hours. Davey previously worked for Teller County Sheriff's Office, which is much smaller than Douglas County. He'd requested to take CIT, but it just wasn't feasible, he says, due to the burden it would place on the department and his co-workers. Thompson is actively seeking grant funding so she can offer the Pulse Line disability training at no or low cost to those departments. If a national bill sponsored by U.S. Senator Bob Casey of Pennsylvania passes, Colorado law enforcement could be at the front line to receive training grants through Safer Interactions Act. Boulder County's deputies are trained well beyond Colorado's core minimum standards. Sloan says his department's culture has changed over the years, due in part to twice-weekly mini-training sessions in which community members, including people with disabilities, are invited to speak with deputies about various topics. About a year ago, for example, three officers and a game warden responded to a suicidal man way up in the mountains. The officers stopped on the road before approaching the situation and devised a game plan. When the man started throwing small explosive devices at officers, they didn't panic and instead shot him in the belly with a beanbag. The incident ended with no injuries. To people looking on, it would have seemed dramatic, Sloan says, but to the officers, that's how you're supposed to do it. He adds, we've always had mental health issues in the community, but we used to say they're just crazy. Now deputies say that person may be affected by schizophrenia. Though law enforcement attitudes are beginning to change, it will likely take time before there's a complete shift in the culture. Colorado has more than 8,000 law enforcement officers in a state that spans more than 100,000 square miles, much of it in rugged mountainous terrain. But for Boulder County Under Sheriff Sloan, whose department is admittedly well-placed financially and well-staffed, it's a built-in expectation. This sort of training, he says, makes for a good deputy. It protects our liability, and it's the right thing to do. This is the Audio Information Network of Colorado. Thank you for joining us for the Boulder Weekly. My name is Kate McCann. Please stay tuned for the next program.